Hello from the last frontier. This is Sourdough for Your Soul, a podcast where we delve into what it means to be a Christian, why we chose this path, and if we're lucky, maybe how we can get better at it. My name is Todd Brosty. I'm the head AV geek at First Presbyterian Church in Mesilla, Alaska, your host. In the next 30 minutes or so, we've got the good news, some bad jokes, prayers for all, stories to inspire, questions and answers, and maybe even some surprises. I hope you'll stick around as we add a bit of zing to your daily bread. And welcome to episode two of Sourdough for Your Soul. That means that, yes, there was an episode one, and if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to do so because, well, I think it's good, and it had a bit of background on what this is all about so you don't feel lost. In addition, as I was preparing the second episode, it occurred to me that I might want to create a small disclaimer and add some basic expectations that might help extinguish any flame wars before they start. So, disclaimer. First and foremost, I am a rank amateur at all of this Christianity stuff. I am not an ordained anything, nor am I a biblical scholar. I will not claim to have anything more than decent curiosity, above average Google foo, and a lot of questions. I do have Bible translations I prefer over others, and I will do my best to note which translation I'm using. But if I don't quote a scripture reference or someone else's work that I may have found interesting and or relevant, you should assume that what I say here is my opinion based on my understanding. I sincerely hope this will be a learning experience for all of us, and I promise to do my best to point you towards people and materials way smarter than I am that you can use to further your own explorations. That being said, if you feel I got something wrong, I hope you will gently let me know in the blog post for that episode over on firstpresswasilla.org. Some other expectations to have that might be helpful as we go along. I am probably going to butcher a lot of the old Hebrew names, and I want to apologize up front to any who know them well. I will do my best to look up pronunciation guides, but it's likely to be ugly no matter what. I'm sorry. Finally, music is a big part of my faith, but as much as I want to, I can't currently afford to pay for the rights to drop snippets of popular songs into the podcast, so I'm going to probably just verbally point you to songs and artists that I find relevant and inspirational as they come up. I will do my best to add those musical references to the podcast info and the main blog post for the episode so you can find them easily. All right, with the housekeeping out of the way, it's time to dig into today's slice of sourdough for your soul. Okay, time for the big bite, prayer. So as we settle down and look at prayer for this episode, I would like to point you at a wonderfully down-to-earth reference for prayer and one of my favorite quote-unquote Christians in the spotlight, Nadia Bowles-Weber, that's B-O-L-Z as in zebra. She is a Lutheran minister, public theologian, and founding pastor for the House of All Sinners and Saints Church in Denver, Colorado. Her website is NadiaBowlesWeber.com, and she is probably polar opposite of what most people think of when they think of a church pastor, complete with tattoos on display and eyes that say she has seen a lot in this life. Her newsletter, The Corners, says this. She writes about personal failings, addiction, grace, faith, and really whatever else she wants to. She always sits in the corner with the other weirdos, unquote. And like Jesus, she is also a firm believer in ministering to the outcasts. As noted on her website, God, please help me not be a jerk is about as common a prayer as I pray in my life. It's blunt, but it's hard to argue with the sentiment. Nadia does a weekly prayer set that I subscribe to, 
So today I'm going to borrow from Nadia Bowles-Weber's The Corners Sunday Prayers for March 29th, 2020. That's right. This prayer is over a year old and yet still has relevance. Dear Lord, for the layers of comfort and convenience that surrounded our lives that we never considered a blessing but always just took for granted, forgive us. For we who must grieve in isolation and not in community, comfort us. For we who care for the sick, protect us. For the ability to turn off the fear-mongering and unhelpful commentary and worst-case scenario clickbait, strengthen us. For the times when we are all out of creative ideas for how to get through this with cooped-up kids, inspire us. For we who are now cutting our own bangs at home, guide us. For the grace to allow ourselves and others to just be less productive, shower us. For the generosity needed from those of us who have more resources, empower us. From our own selfish inclinations, deliver us. For just being your children, none of whom have done a global pandemic before, love us. For the days ahead, accompany us. God, unbound by time, help us to know that you are already present in the future we are fearing. Amen. Time for the Tasty Bite. Little G good news from around the world. Our headline today, they've collected 20 million pounds of food from people who are moving and delivered it to food banks. Reported by the Good News Network on March 26, 2021, a New Jersey moving company has sparked an initiative campaign capitalizing on the amount of food left behind in clients' fridges in order to help increase supply to local food banks. Over 1,050 moving companies and 22 million pounds of food later, and Madam Lowy, founder of Move for Hunger, has turned leftovers into an enterprise-level charity. When people move, they throw away a whole bunch of stuff. Food, clothing, furniture, you name it, Lowy told today. And what bothered us was the perfectly good, non-perishable food that was getting left behind in the pantry or simply thrown in the trash. It's true. When you're trying to get all the little odds and ends, pots and pans from your kitchen into a box and out again in a few hours later, the last thing you want to think about is packing up six-month-old canned peas and dried spaghetti. Booming's stressful, you know. It's not a fun experience. There's a lot going on, Lois said. And we started by asking the very simple question, do you want to donate your food when you move? The question, posed first in 2009, led to the creation of Move for Hunger, which links moving companies with food banks in their area and these pairings with department offices, corporate housing, relocation management companies, real estate agents, and other entities to reach as many tenants as homeowners as possible about the impact they can make by donating their food before they change addresses. Once one of these partners gets word that someone wants to move, Move for Hunger provides a brochure about local hunger problems, a large plastic bag, and a cardboard box, all to help people donate any food they don't feel like bringing along with them. Then a local moving company will bring those packed up pantry staples to a local food bank, helping ensure nothing gets wasted. Move for Hunger operates across the USA and Canada these days and tries to hold special events such as food drives and holiday-themed collections. Their February 2021 Spread the Love event, it saw 16,000 meals donated across 300 separate food drives 
20,000 pounds of peanut butter and jelly being used. Hunger affects one in six American children, and it's only gotten worse during the pandemic. As government-mandated business closures have ravaged the economy, destroyed jobs, and disrupted supply chains. In the first month of Lowy's idea, he managed to collect 300 pounds of food, begging the question, if one moving company could make this kind of impact in their local community, what could an entire network of moving companies do? Those are the kinds of questions and ideas that can make that one in six become zero in six. And just in case you're wondering, I went to moveforhunger.org and there were no fewer than seven moving companies just in Anchorage that are listed as partnering with Move for Hunger. So check it out. Time for the crust. Bad jokes. Here we go. Since we're just starting, I'm still holding firm in the bad religious jokes genre for now but we'll expand as we go, I promise. First up, after church on Sunday morning, a young boy suddenly announced to his mother, Mom, I've decided I'm going to be a minister when I grow up. Well, that's okay with us, the mother said, but what made you decide to be a minister? Well, the boy replied, I'll have to go to church on Sunday anyway, and I figure it'll be more fun to stand up and yell. Number two, a new pastor was out visiting his parishioners one Saturday afternoon. All went well until he came to one house. Although it was obvious someone was home, no one came to the door, even after he had knocked several times. Finally, he pulled out his card and wrote Revelation 3.20, which reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. On the back of the card, and he stuck it in the door. The next day, as he was counting the offering, he found his card in the collection plate. Below his message was the notation Genesis 3.10, which reads, And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. All right, time for the big bite. Big G good news and this episode's message or guest. So, if you listen to the first episode... At the end, I said that I was going to be taking on sin and the law in our next episode. Well, I changed my mind. Kind of. But don't worry, we'll get there. Trust me. But as I looked at my own notes about this podcast, I realized I wasn't following my own guidelines. If we're going to dig deep into Christianity, I think we need to at least go back and hit some of the basics. Do a little Christians 101, if you will. So I did some thinking and came up with three basic questions I thought would be good to start with. One. What is the Bible? Two, what makes a Christian? And three, what is a denomination? As I started writing, I quickly realized I needed to trim things a bit and denominations could wait. A bit more writing and I realized that the just what is the Bible was going to be plenty for this episode. And as I wrote some more, I realized it was probably going to take more than just one episode to tackle that one question. So hang on to your hats. Here we go. So, what is the Bible? Besides being the book found in every hotel room in creation, thanks to the Gideons, the Bible is considered to be the authoritative record of the inspired words of God. It was written by human hands, yes, but believed to be inspired by God. So, while God did not sit down with a stenographer and dictate what we see in the pages, though there are some explicit exceptions early on with Moses, And you could argue that God actually used the other prophets in exactly that way, but that's coming. 
the stories in it were passed around, first verbally, then written in Hebrew for the early parts, and Greek for the later parts, and then agreed upon by enough people who believed in God to become the reference for the Word of God. Now, the history of how the Bible itself came to be what we find on our shelves and on our phones and e-readers is a full topic all by itself, one which I hope to get to, but because it is literally at the core of both the Jewish and Christian faith, I'm going to try and give you a Cliff's Notes or Spark Notes, if you're younger, synopsis so that you have at least an idea what that book most preachers keep waving around is all about. My thanks to the Bible Project at BibleProject.com for their help in my research in putting this together. They are one of the coolest resources for understanding the Bible I have ever found, and I encourage you to check out their webpage or their videos on YouTube under the Bible Project. So, the Christian Bible comes in two parts, or testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the word testament can actually be defined as covenant, so you can look at the first part of the Bible as the Old Covenant with God, and the second part of the Bible as the New Covenant with God. The Bible basically tells the story of God's relationship with his chosen people, the Hebrews, or the Israelites. Quick note. As you read the Bible, you will see references to Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews throughout both the Old and New Testament. While they are often used interchangeably to refer to God's chosen people, there is a difference in their origins and initial use. Hebrew refers more specifically to the descendants of Abraham. Israelite refers more specifically to the descendants of Jacob. As for Jew, After the Hebrew people split into the nations of Judah and Israel, the name Jews seems to have come into use after the exile into Babylon, mostly referring to the remnant of the people who returned to the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. I will typically use whichever name was being used most in the scripture being referenced, but there are times when I use whatever feels right for the narrative. Hey, it's my podcast after all. So, back to it. The Old Testament covers the time from creation up to just before the birth of Jesus and, in modern Bibles, is comprised of 39 books that can be broken into five basic categories. One, the Torah, or Pentateuch. These are the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the meat of the Old Testament. Torah can be translated as teaching, instruction, or law, and is the first part of the Hebrew Bible. It covers creation, the fall from grace, and the early stories up through Moses. Number two, history. These are the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. A series of stories that take the Israelites from the time after Moses through the split into two nations, through greatness to ruin, and even being conquered and taken into exile, up until just before the birth of Jesus. Three, the poetry and writings. This is the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, often just called Songs or Song of Songs. These works of praise, lament, and wisdom supported all the writings from the history and the prophets. Number four, major prophets. These are the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. 
writings by the prophets that played a major role in trying to show the Israelites the folly of their ways, how they would pay for it, and offer hope for what would come later. Five is the minor prophets. These are the books of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Smaller works from other prophets whose words echoed those of the major prophets, but were often presented in different ways. Now, this grouping works to divide the books of the Old Testament into manageable chunks that have similar writings in them. And as I said earlier, the history of how this particular grouping became the standard for our modern Bible is at least an episode in itself. But the guys at the Bible Project noted that the original authors of the Hebrew Scriptures, which contained basically the same set of writings as the Old Testament, had an overall plan for how it was to be read and understood that gives it an amazing overall narrative. And I'm going to introduce it here. They called it Tanakh, which was an acronym for the following. Torah, teaching, Nevaim, which was the prophets, and Ketuvim, which was writings. The Tanakh tradition of grouping the Old Testament in this way was to present it as a prophetic interpretation of Israel's history, guided by the Holy Spirit that revealed God's purpose to rescue the world. It was completed around the 3rd or 2nd century BC and was known at the time as Mikra, meaning that which is read. I found references that say that Tanakh and Mikra are somewhat interchangeable when referring to the Hebrew Scripture. Now, while most of us don't have a version of the Tanakh handy, though you can get yourself an English version, but the way it is put together is perfect for the kind of overview I'm doing here. So as we go forward, just keep in mind that the Old Testament and the Tanakh contain basically the same information, just not in the same order. I will make sure to note the Old Testament books that go along with the Tanakh framework. So let's dive in. The Torah. Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is identical to the Old Testament, and it's where everything started, literally. And it can be roughly divided into three narrative arcs. Arc 1 tells the story of the creation of our world by God, the creation of humans in God's image in the Garden of Eden, and that humans would rule the garden if they simply followed God's direction. It then covers the snake, and the choice that gets them kicked out of Eden. Fun fact, even growing up a heathen, I knew about Adam and Eve, but never understood the actual significance of their names. Adam is Hebrew for man, and thought to be derived from early Hebrew Adam, to be red, the color, as we are kind of ruddy in color, and linked to Adamah, meaning earth, because we came from earth, or dust. Eve originated from the Hebrew chaya, which means to give life. Anyway, it then tells how, after being expelled from the garden, humans kept choosing arrogance, violence, and oppression until they reached the point that God is so fed up with humanity that he's ready to wipe it from the face of his creation. But there is one man named Noah who, quote-unquote, found favor in the eyes of the Lord for he was blameless and walked faithfully with God. Genesis 6-9. So, he has Noah build a giant boat 
load it with his family, plenty of food, and two of every animal in the land, so that they may be spared as he floods the world. Noah does what he's told, and God makes it rain so much that even the people in ancient Seattle are impressed, and the world is rebooted. Once the waters recede, God offers his first covenant to Noah, saying he will never simply wipe the world clean with a flood again, offering the rainbow as a reminder of that covenant. It is in this first arc that we are given our first glimpse at the recurring theme that is repeated throughout not only the Torah, but the entire Old Testament and Tanakh. One, God wants to rule the world through humanity. Adam and Eve were given this blessing and choice while still in the garden. Two, it doesn't work because humanity is the problem. Our selfishness, violence, and oppression of others prevents us from living in harmony with God. The solution? We need a new kind of humanity that will follow God's guidance, chosen and set aside as a people that will guide the rest of humanity through their deep connection with God. Noah is the first, but he will not be the last chosen for a covenant with God. So squeezed in at the end of this arc is a story of humanity coming together and settling all in one area. As they are all descendants of Noah and his family, they only have one language. Now, in the story, instead of building with stone, they figure out how to make bake the earth into bricks, speeding up the building process immensely. And with these bricks, they decide to build a city and a tower that reaches the heavens. God comes down to check on the progress and realizes that, with a unified language and purpose, they might actually be able to do it. But they're nowhere near ready to be on God's level. So, he confuses their languages and scatters them across the world. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. The word Babel actually sounds similar to the Hebrew word for confuse or confound. It's believed to be one of the roots of the final name for that area, Babylon, and it will play a part later in the story. This is where the first arc ends. We're still early in the book of Genesis. Arc 2. This is Genesis chapters 12 through 50. Starts with God's choice of Abram to be the root of his chosen people, calling him to leave all that he has known for a new land that the Lord will give to him, ultimately make of him a great nation. When Abram is, does what he's told, God promises that he will bless him and his wife with a son very late in their lives and then famously tests Abram's devotion by asking him to sacrifice that son. Fun fact, in the Bible, Abraham actually laughs out loud when God tells him that he will grant him and his wife a child when they are so old. So, God tells Abram that he is to name his child Isaac, which means he laughs. Anyway, So Abram is faithful to God's will, placing Isaac on the altar, ready to do what he's been told, but God spares Isaac at the last moment, providing a ram as a substitute. He then changes Abram's name to Abraham and his wife's name to Sarah in the bargain. And so we have God's next attempt to create a new kind of humanity as he offers his covenant to Abraham. 
And from there, we learn about the family that Isaac, his son, is quote-unquote blessed with. And it is quite the historic soap opera, including Isaac's younger son, Jacob, who covers himself with an animal pelt at his mother's Rebecca, Rebecca's direction to trick his old blind father into thinking he's really his really hairy older brother Esau so he can get his father's blessing and thus the largest share of the inheritance. She then sends Jacob to her brother to escape Esau's wrath and find a suitable wife. Jacob falls in love with his uncle Laban's youngest daughter and offers to work for seven years to earn Rachel's hand. But Laban tricks Jacob, swapping in his older daughter Leah after the wedding feast, claiming that custom holds that the eldest daughter must be married first. He promises Jacob he can still have Rachel, but must work another seven years. So Jacob ends up with two wives and 14 years of serving his uncle. At this point, the soap opera shifts into high gear with wives that can and can't conceive, servants who can, and the children of both. There's enough of this that you almost need a scorecard to keep track of it all. We also have Laban constantly cheating Jacob as he works for him, but God shows Jacob a way to secretly turn the tables and still prosper. Eventually, this all comes to a head as Jacob packs up his wives, children, and all that he feels is his and heads home. Laban pursues him, and there is a tense standoff in the desert where Laban accuses Jacob of stealing all that he has from him, and Jacob counters that he has earned everything over the years he worked for Laban. They agree to peace, even as Rachel hides the fact that she did steal the family idols without Laban's knowledge, almost getting her killed. So, Jacob continues his journey home. But remembering how he deceived his own brother, he stops just short, preparing a generous gift for Esau in hopes of convincing him not to kill him for the deception. He prays to God, admitting his unworthiness and reminding God of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and even to Jacob himself. The night before he is to meet with Esau and present his gifts, Jacob is confronted by an unknown man who wrestles with him long into the night. Just before daybreak, the stranger touches Jacob's hip, dislocating it and asking to be released at daybreak. Sensing this is a visitation from God, Jacob refuses to release him unless he blesses him. The stranger asks Jacob his name, and when he gives it, the stranger tells him, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. And that's from Genesis 32, 28. And so the descendants of Jacob become Israelites. And there is a note in there that, therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Genesis 32, 32. So Esau accepts Jacob's gifts reluctantly, more awkwardly than from any leftover anger, and the brothers are reconciled. The story moves on, and we find that the soap opera is not quite over. In almost poetic justice, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, is gifted by God, but hated by most of his 11 brothers, who plan to kill him, chuck him in an old well, and leave him, blaming his death on wild animals. That plan is countered by Reuben, the one brother loyal enough to try and save him, 
and Joseph is only stripped of his robe and dumped in the well. However, before a rescue plan can be put in motion, a band of merchants happen to pass, and the brothers sell Joseph to them. Reuben returns to find the well empty and is distraught, while Joseph is taken to Egypt, where, with God's blessing and some cool dream interpretation, he goes from being a prisoner to first advisor to Pharaoh and in charge of governing much of Egypt's resources in a remarkably short time. As Joseph wisely prepares the land for a great famine revealed in one of Pharaoh's dreams, he runs again into his brothers when they must come to Egypt to buy grain during the famine. While Joseph messes with his brothers a bit, he does not exact the level of revenge he could and eventually brings his whole family to live in Egypt. The Israelites prosper in Egypt while Joseph is alive, living in comfort until he dies an old man. And that brings us to Ark 3. And that's the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The final ark begins after Joseph passes, and a new pharaoh comes to power and sees the Israelites living among them as a threat, numerous enough to cause problems should they ally with someone hostile to Egypt. So begins pharaoh's efforts to oppress and ultimately enslave the Israelites in Egypt. At one point, in an effort to control their growing numbers, he decrees that every Hebrew boy born is to be thrown into the Nile to die, and only the girls are allowed to live. Here begins the story of Moses, set adrift in a reed boat in defiance of the dec decree, his life, his showdown mano a mano with Yul Brenner, I mean, sorry, with Pharaoh, and all the events depicted in, of course, the Ten Commandments. As most of us have seen Charlton Heston in all of his Moses-like splendor at some point, I will hit only the high points. First, Moses did not look like Charlton Heston. Gotta say it. He was Hebrew, lived in the Middle East. He was dark-skinned. They all were. Moses actually had difficulty speaking in public. In Exodus 6.30, Moses says, Since I speak with faltering lips. It was bad enough that he asked God to send somebody else. So, God enlisted Moses' brother, Aaron, to be the speaker. Moses would be in charge of hearing and carrying out God's will, and Aaron would be his mouthpiece. It's actually a good reminder that God isn't worried about your perceived ability, only your willingness to let him work through you. Fun Bible fact, each of the ten plagues and signs visited by God on Egypt during Exodus are believed to have been targeted to show God's power being greater than the quote-unquote gods of Egypt, as follows. First, Nile turned to blood. Hapi, god of the Nile, and Isis, goddess of the Nile. The plague of frogs, Heket, goddess of birth, who had a frog's head. The plague of gnats, Set, god of the desert. The plague of flies, Ra, a sun god, or Uachit, represented by the fly. The death of all the livestock, Hathor, goddess with a cow's head, and Apis, the bull god. Plague of Boils, Sekhmet, goddess with power over disease, and Isis, goddess of healing. The Destructive Hail, Nut, the sky goddess, Osiris, the god of crops, and Set, god of storms. The Plague of Locusts, again, Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops. The Plague of Darkness, Ra, the sun god, or Horus, also a sun god. And finally, the death of the firstborn, Min, 
god of reproduction, Isis, goddess who protected children, and of course Pharaoh, who was seen by the people of Egypt as a god himself. Of special note, with the death of the firstborn plague, we also have the occurrence of the very first Passover, when the Israelites were told to paint the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their door frames as a signal to God to pass over their house. This becomes one of the major celebrations for the Israelites and subsequently for those of the current Jewish faith. It will also play an important role later in the New Testament as well. So when Pharaoh finally relents and sends the Israelites out of Egypt, God is not quite done with Pharaoh. And so we have the epic scene of Pharaoh reconsidering the Egyptians chasing the Israelites and Moses parting the Red Sea at God's command to allow the Israelites to walk through, quote-unquote, on dry ground, along with the subsequent destruction of Pharaoh's army as the Red Sea is dropped back right on their heads. And finally, there on the far shore of the Red Sea, one of the very first instances of worship songs is recorded in the scriptures, sung as the Israelites realize they are truly free. Of course, this gratitude and elation lasts for exactly three days of traveling in the desert until water is scarce before the people start whining and complaining to Moses. And so begins what I will refer to as Moses's great trial. No, you won't find that in the Bible, but it's a pretty good description of what happens. It kind of goes like this. Step one, the people are short of blank. Insert water, food, meat, justice, etc. Step two, Moses prays to God and God provides blank. Again, insert water, manna, quail, guidance. Three, the people are happy for a short time until the next thing to complain about comes up. Step four, God gets royally ticked at how ungrateful these people are and threatens to wipe the Israelites off the map and start over with just Moses. Moses pleads on behalf of the Israelites that people are really not that bad, just stressed, they'll do better, and that God doesn't really want to destroy the people he chose. God, quote-unquote, reconsiders, and we find ourselves back at step one. This goes on in one form or another for 40 years of wandering. Quick note, the sarcasm here in God's, quote-unquote, reconsidering is all mine. The idea that Moses is actually convincing God not to snuff the Israelites seems a bit ludicrous. This seems more likely to be like me as a parent, threatening to empty my kid's room of everything but the bed for refusing to clean it for the thousandth time. I don't really want to empty the room. I'll do it if I have to, but mostly it's intended to motivate my kid to apologize and do a better job going forward. You know, the theme that God loves us and even his anger in the Old Testament is actually that of a parent guiding a child is one we'll come back to later. Also, fun Bible fact, the term manna to describe the crusty substance that condensed out of the morning dew to feed the Israelites in the desert is believed to come from the Hebrew manho, which is often translated as what is it? as the Israelites probably asked Moses just that when it appeared on the ground. It was gathered and used much like grain ground and pounded into cakes to be eaten instead of bread. Anyway, three months into their exodus from Egypt, I mean, come on, I have to use it. It's the title of the chapter, for goodness sake. 
They arrive at Mount Sinai, and a giant storm cloud settles on the mountain full of thunder and lightning. Moses goes up the mountain where God tells him of the covenant he intends to make between himself and the people of Israel and gives him the first of many laws that the people would have to obey, starting with the Ten Commandments that most of us are at least passingly familiar with. Number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God is God, one and only. You shall not make for yourself any idol and bow down and worship it. Idol worship was big at this time in history. You had a statue of whatever god or goddess you thought would help you the most, and you made offerings to it. The lack of any idol was one way for God to be set above all the wannabes, since God was so incredible that you couldn't hope to capture his likeness in a simple idol. Three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Growing up, I heard this as, you will not take the Lord's name in vain was usually flung out when someone used that common expletive, you know, it sounds like, gosh dang you, you know the one. Now, while danging someone to heck, please bear with me, I'm trying to behave, when they cut you off in traffic is certainly not respectful of God. This commandment was focused more on not using the name of God with the reverence and respect it deserved. See, for the Israelites to swear an oath by God's name was to hold your own integrity up against that of God. To claim God was the reason for something happening that was not divine was blasphemy and often punished by death. In fact, to assure that they didn't make the mistake, the Israelites wouldn't even say God's name. The four Hebrew characters that basically translate to YHWH and are often pronounced as Yahweh. They only referred to God as Adonai, or Lord, instead of his true name. So basically, it was if you said God will dot dot dot, you better be really sure God was going to do dot dot dot, or you're going to be in deep. So number four, remember the Sabbath seventh day and keep it holy. God took a rest, a day to rest, at the end of his labors of creating the universe and everything in it. God wanted us to take a similar day away from our work, not for football or fishing, but to focus on God and our gratitude for all that he did for us. So no, binge-watching ESPN is not keeping the Sabbath. It's just not. Honor your father and mother. This one seems straightforward, and for most it is. Seems hardest for teenagers for some reason. Number six, you shall not murder. For the most part, this was easy, and at some point, though, we will look at the idea of war, quote-unquote, in God's name, and how God helped the Israelites crush most of the people in the promised land, but for right now, let's just keep with the don't kill is good, right? Right. Philosophy. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. These two don't really need clarification. Better execution by many, perhaps, but not clarification. Nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Later in the law, you learn that most crimes required at least two people to give testimony to convict. Since many early crimes resulted in death, a single false testimony could literally mean life or death. And ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
wife, ox, donkey, or any of his belongings. Basically, be thankful for what you have and don't worry about what the guy next door has, period. The Big Ten are the most well-known of God's laws to Moses, but they are just the tip of the iceberg that is, quote-unquote, the law. Moses spent 40 days and nights up on that mountain, getting his marching orders from God. When he came back down, he had a total of 613 laws that covered everything from how to worship, to how to stay ritually clean, to how justice was to be handled in disputes. Now, I'll be honest here, reading this section of the Old Testament is hard. There is a lot of repetitive language and a lot of rules that on the surface have no relevance to the time we live in. I mean, come on, the description of how to build the Ark of the Covenant and the elaborate sets of tents that were to surround it is hard to imagine and not the kind of DIY project I plan to take up on my weekends. But if you look at this list of do's and don'ts, guilt offerings versus fellowship offerings, how to treat your livestock and your servants, etc., from the perspective of a people who had just spent a generation in slavery with no self-governance, you can see that God was trying to provide, on a very basic level, the guidance these people would need to simply survive as an independent nation. Additionally, if we look at it in the context of the recurring theme we introduced in Arc 1, once again we see God is trying to make a new humanity with a covenant that, if they will follow God's laws, will ready them for their place at God's side. Of course, Moses' time on the mountain is immediately followed by humanity proving we really aren't ready for this, as Moses comes down the mountain to find that a number of the Israelites have already screwed up by creating a golden calf idol, making sacrifices to it, and generally making a spectacle of themselves. God is, as noted before, ready to bring down his wrath on the people, and while Moses argues against it, even he is so furious that he smashes the tablets with the law carved into them. The group responsible is smited, smite, smote, smote, smote. New tablets are chiseled out for God to carve the law back into, and God confirms his covenant with the remaining Israelites, promising to deliver them into a land that will become their inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. The next big chunk of the Torah, the last book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first third of the book of Numbers, all focus on even more of the laws and practices that the Israelites were to follow. The choice of the clan of Levi to become the dedicated priests for the Israelites, as well as the details of a survey, all the people who came out of Egypt, clan by clan. Lots of hard-to-pronounce names, lots of commands of the Lord. As I said before, a challenge to read thoroughly and not skimp. Now, about the middle of the book of Numbers, we see a shift from Moses giving the law to a renewed round of complaints and rebellion within the Israelites against Moses and God. As a result, there are some hard lessons learned here about the consequences of open rebellion against God's chosen prophet, and even a lesson for Moses that not even he was exempt from following God's directions and taking credit for God's work. The cost of this rebellion? God tells the Israelites that they will wander the desert for 40 years 
until no one from the generation who chose to rebel is left alive, and only their descendants remain to go into the land promised by God. From there, the focus shifts to follow the battles and trials the Israelites faced over the next 40 years on their way to the promised land. Here we see that when they are following God's commands, their enemies are easily vanquished. But when they falter and let themselves be influenced by those enemies, God's anger is quick to bring punishment. It's interesting. I've heard a handful of jokes that are one variation or another on the, you know why the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert? Because Moses wouldn't ask for directions. That men, even as far back as Moses, simply refused to ask for directions is funny. But as I read this part of the Torah, I find it ironic that they could have saved themselves the 40 years of wandering if they had simply followed the directions they were given in the first place. Anyway, once the 40 years of wandering is passed, Moses leads the remaining Israelites to the banks of the Jordan River and makes one last attempt to be sure the people are as ready as he can make them to go into the land God promised as their inheritance. He recounts their journey to get there and goes over many of the laws again, warning people to keep true to their God as they go into a land full of people who will try to corrupt them. He reminds them of the mistakes and the judgments God has handed out, as well as the miracles performed by God to bring them out of slavery. Moses balances the blessings God will give to those who are obedient with the curses that will fall on those who are not. He challenges the people to renew God's covenant to them in their hearts. Finally, because he was 120 years old and God had told him he would not cross into the promised land because of his own failure, Moses hands off his mantle to Joshua at God's command and with God's blessing. With Joshua now leading the people, God gives Moses his final assignment to write a final song that predicts that the Israelites, even after all God has done, will still turn from him, and in return, God, quote-unquote, would hide his face in that day. Deuteronomy 31.18. It is a dark prophecy of what is to come. The end of the Torah is bittersweet. After delivering God's prediction of the eventual fall of the Israelites, Moses climbs a mountain where he can see the land he led the people to, even if he cannot enter it. His last recorded thoughts are a blessing for Israel's tribes, calling out each one's strengths almost as a message of encouragement to boost them against the earlier prophecy. Moses passes away on the mountain, and in an amazing passage of Scripture, it is God's own hand that buries his beloved prophet, his grave unknown to any save God. In the final words of the Torah, the biblical writers take a moment to celebrate Moses. Quote, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did, in the sight of all Israel. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. Time for the last bites. Questions from listeners. So, second episode, and so far there are no questions to answer from all of you yet. 
But we covered a lot of stuff in this episode, so I'm still hopeful. So instead, I'll take the time to remind you to put your questions in. Head over to our main website, firstpresswithsilla.org, and look for the blog link in the options along the top of the page. Click on it, then click on the Sourdough for the Soul link on the right side of the page. Find the blog post for this episode. Click on the comments link for that episode and leave me your name and a question in the comment section. I'd really appreciate it. Time for the crumbs, final thoughts. Once again, if you made it all the way to here, thank you so very much. I hope my SparkNotes version of the first part of the Old Testament was informative for any of you who haven't done the deep dive through it yet and entertaining enough not to bore those who are well-versed, as the saying goes. I felt it was important to ground our future episodes in some of the basics, so I hope you will come back as we pick up next time with the Nevi'im and Ketuvim, portions of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and meet the major prophets post-Moses, along with figures like King David, King Solomon, Isaiah, Job, Daniel. I also want to give you a quick reminder that in addition to the webpage, firstpresswasilla.org, we have a Facebook presence and a YouTube channel where you can see the archives of our worship service videos along with Pastor Henry's Soul Food series where he provides midweek snacks of scripture and song. Please check those out. Follow, like, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Search First Press Wasilla on either platform to find us. Finally, if you are enjoying this podcast as new as it is, especially as we get it ramped up, please take a moment rate the podcast wherever you picked it up. Apple, I, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, iHeartRadio, it would really help. And as always, if you're looking for a church and you live in Alaska's Matsu Valley, we encourage you to drop by and check out First Presbyterian Church of Wasilla. Our worship services are on Sunday, 10 a.m., and we're located at 1375 East Bogard Road in Wasilla, Alaska. You can also check in with our live stream Sundays at 10 a.m. Alaska Standard Time over on Facebook. And with that, we'll lick the butter off our fingers and send us off with one of my favorite benedictions from Numbers 624 to 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Blessings to you all, and I hope to find you here again next time for another big slice of sourdough for your soul.